0: Welcome back everybody, it's episode 28 of Jointly Venturing, Let's Talk World Citizenship. It's late July 2020 and today was Australia's worst day on the COVID-19 front, 700 some odd new cases. And today's episode is about, not a recent problem, but an ongoing problem that's been around for many, many decades going on 75 years or so, 72 years to be precise. And that is the question of Palestine, the question of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which commenced in 1948, effectively, and of course, many things before that, um, uh, when Israel became a state, and has been unresolved ever since. And I was just looking at the newspaper before uh, starting our episode tonight, and I came across an article in The Guardian newspaper that is uh, about the American actor called Seth Rogen. And the title of the article is Seth Rogen, I Was Fed a Huge Amount of Lies About Israel. This is in today's Guardian, 29th of July, 2020. And the article subtitle is, Actor Says When He Was Younger... He wasn't told Palestinians lived on land that became the Jewish state. So, this is a common story that we hear often um, from people around the world, whether Jewish or non Jewish, um, that they simply were never really informed about uh, the situation in what is currently called um, Israel, or also known as historic Palestine. And I certainly know with my countless Jewish friends, um, every single one of them I've spoken with, about issues regarding uh, the people of Palestine, virtually every single thing I tell them is news to them. I'm talking about extremely smart, highly educated, very interesting, curious people who nonetheless knew virtually nothing about the actual situation on the ground in historic Palestine today. And that is also reflected in this article here, um, all about Seth Rogan. So that is sort of the background to what we're going to talk about today, which is sort of a basic Palestine 101 discussion with a leading expert on the situation there. Um, and we hope to provide some basic background so that you can understand the situation better during an era where things are as, as unstable and as sort of uh, not positive as could be possible. So today, we're very fortunate to be speaking with Joe Shekla, who's the coordinator of the Housing and Land Rights Network of Habitat International Coalition. He's talking to us today, very close to Palestine. Um, next door in Egypt. He's speaking to us from Cairo. Um, Joe's had many years of experience working and living in uh, Palestine, including a, th- a three-year stint in Gaza, uh, where he was working for the United Nations, and many, many, many other trips there. Um, so Joe, welcome to Jointly Venturing.
1: Well, thanks. It's good to be here. Um Thanks for the introduction and a very appropriate one, I would say, um, because this issue really fits within the kind of general questioning uh, that many of us are going through, uh, including questioning our own history. Uh, so the the subject of basics and how things got started in this uh, Israeli-Palestinian uh, whatever you want to call it, conflict, the, the Palestine question, um, those basics are, are really quite important. And especially now, uh, well, whether it's Seth Rogan or, or any of us uh, who is being confronted uh, with our own uh, narratives uh, that we've been uh, fed much of our lives, uh, certainly, uh, in the Americas, in the colonial uh, context. Um, we have to really interrogate these things. Uh, and also so that we have good grounding uh, not to be kind of diverted or or uh, somehow distracted by the latest atrocity, of which there are many. Uh, we know the diversion tactics of politicians, politicians, uh, who shall remain nameless, but you know who they are. Uh, the list is just too long for this uh, for this discussion. Uh, but so that we don't get diverted by those uh, very recent uh, things and begin where the actual uh, situation uh, started. So where take take us back to the critics, t-
0: to the very beginning of. Uh, of let's say the Zionist movement and how that how that originated, um, what perspectives it yeah. took, and and sort of the arguments that were made that uh, eventually convinced a number of international players to support the idea of the establishment of the state of Israel.
1: Well, if you permit me, I think we uh, have to go back to well, we have to go back in history and. Uh, we could go back uh, quite far, in fact. Uh, certainly in Europe, uh, particularly in Europe, uh, people uh, of Jewish faith were the subject of discrimination. Uh, part of that, uh, and horrible discrimination in the form of pogroms, in the form of denial of their rights to own land or engage in certain uh, livelihoods, etc. Uh, and then of course, uh, uh, mass murder as it uh, turns out. Uh, and m- much of this was uh, motivated by religious ideology, uh, needless to say. Uh, I attribute much of it to the narrative of uh, Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, who uh, was a collaborator with the Romans and uh, put, tried to put the Romans, uh, take the Romans off the hook and, and blame the Jews for killing Christ. And this has been uh, one of the, you know, many, but certainly the seminal uh, charge against uh, Jews in the Christian world, uh, that they bear collective guilt for this, um, this, uh, this crucifixion and death of their savior. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also in the crucible of Europe, in the, the tumult of uh, the mid-19th century, of course, this was the time of the the Spring of Nations uh, when there was a, a movement uh, collectively uh, conjoining students, workers, peasants to redefine uh, politics and redefine borders and redefine states. Uh, that Spring of Nations in 1948 uh, took place with a lot of... Uh, national aspirations many of which were dashed two years later when the peasants allied with the bourgeoisie and the, the whole movement collapsed so the spring turned into uh, an unfortunate uh, harsh winter uh, for them like in our Arab Spring uh, analogy but out of that crucible uh, came this nationalist movement that was also very much uh, racially uh, motivated uh, or grounded, and each nation was trying to define its own uh, distinction uh, on genetic on a genetic uh, basis. We had the, the Herbert Spencer movement, you know, the eugenics movement that grew out of that. And in the same period, in fact, in 1851, uh, we have what is considered to be kind of a standard reference for Zionists, uh, written by a man named Heinrich Dretz, a Jewish German-speaking Pole who wrote the history of the Jews or the history of the Jewish people, depending on your translation. And this was the romantic novel that took scripture and filled it in with fantasy, uh, attempting to create this uh, sense that People of Jewish faith uh, constituted a common race. Well, this fits perfectly within the racist narratives of the, of the time. Uh, it became, uh, of course, a motivation for, for Zionism that is, that every race and nationality should have its own state. Uh, and this may, be at, at the sort of on the surface, prima facie, look like a kind of a a standard, a norm uh, at the time. But how it began actually when it crystallized in the Zionist movement uh, was a kind of a setup where uh, to establish a state, it was already understood uh, what is enshrined in Article One of the Montevideo Convention, the, the attributes of a state. Those are three things. One is territory. Uh, One, of course, is population and people, or peoples. Uh, And the third requisite uh, are, of course, institutions, including governments that are recognized internationally. Mm -hmm. But even before that, that formula was enshrined in Article 1 of the Montevideo Convention in 1933, uh, the Zionist movement and its leadership understood these components very well. They had no territory. Distinctly Jewish. They had no people distinctly Jewish. Uh, And as, you know, the new historians have pointed out, the, you know, the Jews of Europe came from many different origins. We don't need to get into that uh, in detail, but in North Africa, they were Berbers. In uh, Eastern Europe, they were, uh, they had Turkic roots. Uh, The, you know, the Rhineland, Jews and, and in Lincoln, Lincolnshire and in England, they came originally from uh, the uh, from Andalusia. They had no common uh, r- racial or national characteristics whatsoever, a, any more than any other uh, group of uh, religious uh, adherents or practitioners. But this notion uh, was at the the core of a movement. That began by establishing institutions for lack of the other attributes of a state. The the principal and first institution uh, was the world Zionist organization, established formally in the Basel Convention uh, in Switzerland uh, of the Zionist movement in 1897. Mm-hmm. And this uh, this institution started. Uh, with a charter, with Articles of Incorporation, that uh, set out the purposes uh, of colonization for uh, the benefit of people of Jewish race race uh, or descendancy. So the concept of Jew equals racially distinct category was built into this institution, and the services of this institution um, were exclusively for those having Jewish, belonging to the Jewish race, race or descendancy, uh, and that becomes kind of a fulcrum, the linchpin, if you will, of the whole system uh, that became apartheid uh, in South Africa, but but also the apartheid practiced in Palestine. Uh, that institution was responsible for the colonization, and there was the, uh, the Palestine Colonization, uh, Colonial Trust, uh, and other institutions. But these, these crystallized into kind of a, a, a group of basic institutions uh, that became the proto-state. Uh, of course, the World Zionist Organization uh, carried the title Zionist, and most Jews in the world certainly in north america and in europe were not zionists uh they were they were practitioners there's always been this dilemma you know uh since then over whether or not we are jews by by faith and practice or we're jews as a as a nationality mm-hmm. uh as a national group uh, and this has been the subject of anti-zionist jewish writing and thinking uh, for centuries. In fact, uh, starting with the emancipationist tradition of Moses Mendelssohn, the objective was to be equal citizens uh, in Europe, not to be distinct racially or or in any other way, uh, but to have the freedom in a democracy where one could worship as one chooses. This long Emancipationist tradition was embattled uh, with the Zionist movement, and it remains uh, one of those issues that, Scott, you were referring to now uh, with the the, the kind of uh, epiphany, if you will, of uh, a new generation of people of Jewish faith who have discovered they've been lied to for generations. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this, this Emancipationist tradition has always existed, uh, parallel to the Zionist one, and they've always been in contention. But the Zionists were not the majority by any means. Uh, there was, of course, the Rothschilds and, you know, Isabel Songweil and the, uh, you know, uh, uh, Theodore Herzl and these leaders who were kind of like the, the, the latter-day uh, Saul of Tarsus who were doing, you know, collecting funds uh, to feed their new uh, religion, but at the expense of the unrecognized people already living in the target country that they, they had their eyes set on to become um, uh, a Jewish state. Uh, so this continuity of history is really important, I think, uh, to understand. But what happened in the case of uh, Jews of, or people of Jewish faith in Europe and in North America, it is the the need for something that was equally colonialist, but not so much labeled as Zionist. And so the same organization uh, came up with a sister organization, same executive directors, uh, you know, same articles of incorporation, same objectives, but called uh, the Jewish Agency. Mm-hmm. which sounds rather innocuous. I mean who could, who could uh, assail a Jewish agency, Jews, people of Jewish faith, needed agency. Uh, but they were actually uh, a kind of a, uh, a, a, a wider face, if you will, unfortunately, for that um, analogy, but a, a kind of a, a happy face, of the World Zionist Organization, and it's now the World Zionist Organization slash Jewish Agency, and has, has been since 1927. Right, right. Uh, and that led, to, that led to a division of labor later on that's important. But also in that division of labor, uh, without the people, without the territory, um, was the funding agent uh, of that. So the division of labor soon became necessary so that uh, already in 1901 those same people uh, advocating a jewish state jewish race jewish nationality uh, in europe established the jewish national fund the jewish national fund became the kind of uh, uh, financial vehicle for both the world zionist organization and the jewish agency uh, and the colonization of Palestine uh, overall. It has been uh, for persons of Jewish faith growing up, you know, in uh, you know, engaged Zionist families, it became the symbol of their contribution and their connection uh, to Israel. Um, You know, having the little JNF little blue boxes that everybody put their Their coins in to save and then contribute to the Jewish National Fund uh, and the colonization of Israel. Uh, This still continues until today. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is part of the the ideology uh, that people of Jewish faith were were raised with in Zionist families. That always the Jewish National Fund was this this. Really, uh, do-gooder organization that is, you know, protecting the environment, that is uh, planting trees, that is uh, 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 funding the the return of uh, of lost souls uh, to a land they had no historical uh, connection with, uh, not congenitally or or geographically uh, but it was these were the engines of, of an ideology that um, replaced or supplanted the other attributes of a state until the territory and the people could be consolidated in a way that realized the colonial vision of yeah. course the world was also moving away from the colonial past. Uh, it hasn't yet actually weaned itself off that colonial past, uh, but at least it was taking uh, different forms. Uh, there was the mandate system, of course, uh, with the defeat of the Ottoman Empire that uh, led to the British mandate over Palestine and the French mandate over greater Syria. Mm-hmm and the British mandate over Iraq, for that matter, as well, you know, after the First World War, uh, kind of set the stage, and the like, sykes picot agreement that that defined, uh, carved out territories to uh, comply with the interests of those uh, colonial powers, uh, remain part of the, the contention today, and, and need to be, of course, interrogated. But what happened before 1948 was a colonial process that through the, uh, the British mandate. And that was a kind of, that British mandate was also kind of, uh, ambivalent about colonization. Uh, you know, there was the British white paper that, uh, in the thirties called for some kind of a partition, but it was never really, um, articulated or adopted as as policy but it became the kind of uh, raison d'etre for the zionist movement to partition palestine uh, as a first step to control of the whole of of palestine which is by the way the only country in the region with with natural borders there there's no other border line in the region that conforms with uh, actual geographical features like Palestine. It was the most well-defined cultural and economic unit uh, within the whole region, including, of course, the country that I'm sitting in. So uh, that was uh, the vision of – the ultimate vision was to have an economic union, but even with the Balfour Declaration 101 years ago – well, 102 years ago now, that uh, uh, promised a homeland, a Jewish home in Palestine. It never called for uh, two states. It never called for, uh, for that matter, partition. Uh, the, the concept of partition uh, came out of a, a, a wave of uh, political ideology that, by the way, also conspires against one of the sacrosanct principles of international law, and that is the concept of uti possidetis juris. It is, it is the old Roman law principle that establishes the sovereignty uh, eventually of states, but it's been interpreted very clearly in Latin America for almost, well, uh, 199 years uh, as the principle prohibiting the partition or recolonization of a self-determination unit. Mm -hmm. And that self-determination unit of Palestine, under the mandate, uh, uh, category A mandate, which is meant to be almost ready for statehood, uh, that became the kind of breach of a sacrosanct principle of international law, this concept of partition. Uh, It never should have been uh, a recommendation coming out of the General Assembly uh, that adhered to a whole, honored, you know, time-honored legacy of international law and uh, law of nations. But that's what happened for political reasons um, in 1947 with the Partition Resolution, and then the the war of uh, that took place and the ethnic cleansing that took place in 1947 and 1948 uh by the zionist forces that by the way uh were identified as as terrorists by the by the british administration and those terrorists uh, the, the leaders of those those terrorist groups actually became uh prime ministers uh, serial prime ministers of the state of Israel, uh, these contradictions somehow uh, were lost uh, to, uh, you know, the the ideologized generations of not only people of Jewish faith, uh, but a lot of us who grew up in colonial settings. Uh, for example, I can admit that I was born and raised in the United States of North America. Well, that was not my choice, but what what happened was that we all got sort of imbued with this sense that uh, there's uh, there's a sacrament in colonization of, you know, extending the frontier of uh, of uh, eliminating the, uh, indig- or replacing the indigenous people. And what also is very subtle for us in North America and in and, and other countries as well, is this long tradition that has come out through the literature, the colonial literature of the United States, where the early settlers called themselves the new Israelites um, and, the, and called the indigenous peoples the new Canaanites. Uh, The literature, the books, the the newspapers, the correspondence uh, articles are replete uh, with these references, and every pulpit for 300 years in North America was speaking of their own congregations as the new Israel, so that this concept of of Israel was a a sacrament long before uh, the Zionist movement in Europe or the establishment of the... Modern state uh, of the same name.
0: So um, <coughs> let, let's just let's just pause there for a second and and um, and give people just a little bit more clarity in terms of the geopolitical realities on the yes. ground of the area that is known yes. as historic Palestine, which of course comprises what is today the Gaza Strip, Israel proper, the West Bank and uh, yeah. and um, 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 the Golan Heights in the northern part of the area. So prior to the British Mandate beginning, which I believe was 1917, is that correct? British Mandate?
1: Uh, well, it, yeah, 19- it, it was after the war. The war ended in 1918. The, the Mandate began... Uh,
0: Treaty of Versailles, right? So, So nineteen nineteen, yeah, nineteen nineteen. So, prior to nineteen nineteen, this this piece of territory was under the control of the Ottoman Empire, correct?
1: These were administrative units of the Ottoman uh, Empire, which was identified. The state ideology was pan-Islam, so it was essentially it wasn't a Turkish necessarily a Turkish unit, it was an Islamic uh, empire with minorities uh, identified within it.
0: And at that time, um, let's say in 1919 at the, at the commencement of the British mandate, um, what percent of the local population in historic Palestine was Arab and what percentage was Jewish?
1: Uh, the population – well, uh, there are two, two uh, statistics to consider. The, uh, the population – the Jewish population in Palestine was uh, very small, mostly concentrated in some neighborhoods of uh, West Jerusalem and in Tel Aviv, which was a, a colo- colony built on the ruins of seven uh, destroyed Palestinian villages. And a few kibbutzim, uh, which they called altogether the Yishuv or the colony, the Jewish colony in Palestine. Um, that was uh, about uh, five or six percent uh, of the population. And then the land ownership was uh, actually the population was a little bit more than 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 that. But the popul- but the land ownership was between five and six percent. Uh, Jewish owned mm-hmm. um, uh, at the time of the mandate. Uh, right, right. That, that was partly due to the activities of the Jewish National Fund, uh, the World Zionist Organization, Jewish Agency, uh, purchasing land uh, from absentee land loan, uh, landowners, and also the Yeshuv, the, the kibbutz uh, movement, also would acquire land. By, you know, uh, expanding their their fences in the middle of <laughs> the uh, so there were all kinds of tactics, large and small, that sought to extend, of course, the the land holding of the the Jewish colony there, the European Jewish colony, but, but also there was, a, you know, a small population uh, of. Palestinian Jews uh, who have always lived there, just like everywhere else in the Middle East, North Africa, uh, and, and elsewhere. Um, we're not talking about them so much, uh, but rather the, the, the colonists who came in during, during the mandate.
0: Right, and um, that, that percentage stayed relatively stable until the end of the Second World War? Until, uh,
1: until the end of the First World War, and then it began to grow. And so how, how, uh, with, where was it at the
0: end of uh, World War II? Uh,
1: the actual population was... Uh, Just in terms of percentages. I, I don't have statistics, but it was, it was less than 20%. Uh, right. But with the, with the ethnic cleansing of 1947-1948, uh, uh, and I mentioned, yeah, then, then of course, the majority... Of uh, Palestinians fled, or were expelled, or forcibly uh, displaced, so that uh, created a near uh, parity of population, right, uh, in 1947-48. Uh, but the Palestinians were in, in the partition were given a, 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 a lesser proportion of the land that n- that now with the expansion of the actual state of Israel uh, became uh, 20 22 percent of the of historic Palestine that remains the occupied territories
0: right right and and uh, so just to again just to backtrack a little bit again to make it super clear for people because you know a lot of people don't know this um, obviously you know what the Jewish people endured during the Second World War in the form of the Holocaust is one of the great you know, tragedies ever to befell any people anywhere in the world and with millions of people indiscriminately killed in, in concentration camps uh, and led by Germany, yep. etc. And we all know that and we all well, hang absolutely. our heads in collective shame that that ever happened yeah. and we, we have the deepest sympathy yeah. and compassion for every single victim of that horrendous, horrendous period of time. Uh, there's absolutely. no doubt about that, and and it should
1: never be. Repeated. Pardon, but it, is. and it should never be
0: repeated. Of course, absolutely, yeah. no question about that. So we need to see the whole area within the the broader historical context of you know we have the Brit- British Empire is is waning, um, the U.S. post war. Empire is on the ascendancy, along with other allies who were victorious um, it, following the the surrender of the Germans and the Italians and the Japanese in nineteen forty five, and um, and then at the same time we have also this sort of collective feeling of of guilt, obviously across the board um, for everything that was allowed to happen. Um, during the Nazi regime of 1933 to 1945. So, I mean, one could ask the question you know, would there even be an Israel had it not be, been for the tragedies of, of the Second World War and the Nazi regime? Or would, it, would history have played itself out in, in completely different ways? I've been told by both Palestinian friends and Jewish friends and others that a whole range of other pieces of territory were effectively offered to the Jewish people as a place to have a homeland which was indeed a Jewish homeland i've heard that uganda was put on the table as a possibility i've heard that parts of the australian outback were put on the table for as a possibility i've heard a number of other options that they, these were all like like formally offered to yeah. jewish negotiators in the sort of you know carving up of territory period following the, the Second World War, where they could have gone. Uh, Canada, I believe, there were parts of um, some of the Canadian provinces that were also offered, I believe. And um, so all of these things were put on the table. They were all summarily rejected. Um, they would have been, by the way, far, far, far larger pieces of land than ultimately uh, what became Israel. Um, and, and they had their own whole series of injustices associated with those it would have been on aboriginal territory it would have been an indigenous territory it would have been in, in the you know Ugandan local people's territory etc without them having a say so none of those were ideal right. options but just to show people that there was discussion there was very intensive widespread discussion about other options as a Jewish homeland alternative to what eventually was selected which was the long term objective of the zionist movement that you mentioned um to do it in what is what they see as the holy land you know which is an area obviously uh which is sacred to many many different religious faiths i mean orthodox uh, christians uh, regular old christians the birthplace of christ you know muslims jewish people and probably in a whole sort of you know Zoroastrians and a whole range of others, um, all Andrew. see, it. Uh, yeah, Druze indeed. Yeah. Um, it, that little teeny sliver of land is considered sacred by a, a whole wide spectrum of you know deity based religions, um, and yet essentially now today it it is under the effective control of just one of them. So. 1945 yeah. comes around, World War II ends, the Allies are victorious, um, there's discussions and peace agreements and, and so on and so forth, and then the British mandate is ending, the Zionists are extremely well organized, they're extremely well armed, and then they begin this, yeah. this concerted effort using violence to achieve their political objectives. What happened then?
1: Yeah. Well, um, it, it should be pointed out with this history. Yes, there were many uh, other options. There was the Uganda option. There was even a Madagascar option. There was the 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 famous or infamous Andina project in uh, Patagonia in uh, in Argentina. Uh, all of these were on offer, but you don't, you notice that among that list of <clears throat> alternatives offered by the colonial powers, Bavaria wasn't one of them. Right. Right. So, right. you know, so the, there was also this, this historic tension uh, between, the, well, uh, you know, this friendly, uh, you know, convergence uh, uh, actually between the anti-Semites and the Zionists uh, to get the Jews out of Europe. And this was some of the motivation of some Europeans who supported the Zionist movement. Uh, and then there was also this uh, concept of having, and this is also part of the Zionist literature and the, uh, and the colonial literature of the time, <clears throat> that in the, in the period where oil was being discovered in the region that to have an outpost uh like an Israel, kind of a Western uh, European allied Israel in the region would be a st- geostrategic asset, uh, that, that would also be somehow uh, a clear advantage for, for the West. When even in the late uh, Ottoman period, for example, the, the Jewish population, the self-identified Jewish population of Palestine was only 3%. Right. uh so the, the colonization uh, I mean in any case it, it had to involve a colonization uh, m- very much replicating the the colonizations of the past and so you have this uh, this resonance of a uh, you know the a, 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 a Jewish national home in Uganda or Australia as as kind of a, a reflection of that, uh, those those many strains of of ideology, including anti-Semitic, but also making sure that um, you know Jews were out of Europe, uh, and there are yeah. plenty yeah. of uh, arrangements. You know the 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 the, the transfer agreements uh, between the Zionist movement in Hungary and the Nazis, and the, and the uh, agreements between the uh the the uh, the zionist movement uh and uh, the ottomans in in constantinople in in istanbul at the time uh were 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 well maybe not so famous but certainly part of the 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 kind of deal of the century in that case to move uh, unwanted jews uh out of europe uh Yes, I think that in in speculation, we can always say that without the Holocaust, Israel would not have had the great sympathy, uh, that, that that wellspring of, of sympathy uh, that blinded decision makers to the existence of the indigenous civilization that was there. Um, Blinded them also to the violations of sacrosanct principles of international law that should have been their, um, you know, the tools of their trade, uh, and certainly in the in the post-mandate period, and I mean Germany has been one of the the greatest um, impetuses or the funders. Of the establishment of the state of Israel, the uh, the telecommunication system was set up by by uh, Germany. Uh, Germany, um, uh, you know, supplied the steel for the for the construction. Um, you know, fifty five billion dollars worth of of direct grants from Germany to Israel in the three decades after. Uh, the establishment of the of the proclamation of the state mm-hmm. you know these are kinds of reparations uh, that were part of that post Holocaust um, um, blood money uh, that, that went to establish this colony in Israel there there's this this tremendous confluence and and this is why the story, has to invoke these these you know these deep past temporal references, but also the the convergence of many strains of of ideology, the racist ideology, the anti semite ideology, which is part of that in Europe, uh, the the Holocaust, which of course culminated that, but but also the reparations that uh, that arose from that. These are all factors that made Israel uh, the colonial outpost that it is. And all of these ideological strains um, have blinded us, and and most directly um, persons of Jewish faith, uh, to the, the act of colonialism, the serious crime of population transfer uh, that were carried out, the ethnic cleansing uh that somehow were justified, and even for North Americans who thought that this, you know, this concept of Israel was a sacrament anyway, because they because it's us.
0: Um, right, and you know, lest we also we forget also, the the slogan that was so commonly proclaimed by the Zionist movement was, with not a not a smidgen of irony, uh, for a people without a land, a land without a land people. Without- so yeah, this is how this down is down. how it was sold to to the international community. They actually publicly, repeatedly said, "We are a people. We have no land. Therefore, we're going to a land that has no people." Neglecting to mention that the Palestinian people had been living there for thousands of years, you know, and that's how it all yeah, began.
1: And the Zionists. Uh... Uh, people of Jewish faith, uh, under their leadership, under Zionist leadership, accepted this double-edged sword uh, of, uh, of identification as a distinct race, that Jew- persons of Jewish faith constituted a, a distinct race. Well, it was precisely that argument that the Nazis used uh, to persecute them, to, to annihilate them, um, you know, and, mm-hmm. and they had... No, uh, you know, genetic, uh, geo, historic uh, reasons for uh, that justified that. Of course, the same was done in the same proportion to the Roma, who, by the way, have a common uh, origin, by the way. It's not the, I mean, they could be in some racist concept considered to be a distinct people. But you know, people of Jewish faith in Europe, especially with their great with their great diversity, uh, they swallowed this, this bitter pill, uh, and it and it actually led to justifications for their genocide. And the same the same principles are enshrined in those institutions: the World Zionist Organization, Jewish Agency, Jewish National Fund. They're the institutions that control the land, all of the resources in historic Palestine. They have actually reproduced additional uh, and, and also tax-exempt registered charity institutions that bear the same uh, uh, fundamental principles and same objectives. You have the Mecorot's. Uh, which is the institution established uh, uh, in 1932 uh, to control all of the water for the benefit of people of Jewish race and descendancy. That institution, that Israeli institution, controls all the water in historic Palestine. Um, That institution was established by the Jewish National Fund the Jewish agency, and the Histadrut, which, by the way, is the national, so-called national institution that controls labor. Um,
0: right. It right. was a very
1: smart setup, you know, without a state establishing the institutions that sought recognition in public international law that were racially-based apartheid institutions from their establishment, from their very design. And what they do is that they operationalize those apartheid principles to the expense of the indigenous uh, population and dispossess the indigenous population uh, of historic policy. That is their pre-state purpose and their post-state function. These are the institutions, if we wanna you know, keep that focus on how, what are the tools of apartheid and how it was established, why, and why the dispossession has been so, well, incremental, but increasingly complete is because they are chartered to control all of the resources, land, housing, water, environment, labor, for the benefit of people of Jewish race or descendancy, that means everyone else. Everyone else is out. That right. is the model uh, upon which uh, apartheid South Africa built its own institutions and its policies. To, to make the, the obvious analogy, uh, we can also. Uh, give credit to uh, John Dugard, who explained to us the anatomy of South African apartheid, where he identified that the Population Registry Act was really what he called the linchpin of apartheid. It was that bit of legislation that established the color distinction between people and then the corresponding uh, rights and responsibilities arose from that color distinction by analogy what we have in Israel is the linchpin which is Jewish nationality it arises from the those charters of the institutions that i just described and the leum yahudi becomes the the global status uh, for people of Jewish faith, that is those who have Jewish mothers and can you know verify that. Mm-hmm. Um, they have all of the pri- privileges of the land, the environment, uh, development, the water, uh, labor uh, at the expense of the indigenous people. That's how it's set up. And those institutions operate, in fact, outside of the government of Israel. They don't need uh, government oversight. In fact, government institutions are dictated by them. You cannot have a regional uh, development plan, an urban development plan, without the approval of the Jewish agency. when. Israeli legislation uh, refers to applying the principles of the Jewish agency. This is the the, the, the sort of uh, telegraphic or the shorthand language that means apartheid only for people of Jewish race, race and descendancy.
0: Right, and of uh, course it, you- it's useful to point out here that a, a, a fact that you know completely shocked me when I first learned it many years ago that um, you know, as you mentioned, in the early years of the state of Israel, according to written plans, um, massive swathes of historic Palestine were evacuated of Palestinians who were forced out into places like Gaza, into into the West Bank, and certainly into third countries all across the world. One of the biggest diasporas in the world are Palestinian refugees, um, who... who yeah. As part of a plan, Um, land was taken over, combined with the outright destruction, permanent eradication of more than 531 Palestinian villages in what is now Israel. All of this is very, very well documented. Um, And as well, important to point out, um, just before I get to my point, that there is a warehouse In um, Queens, in New York City, that holds the original property titles and property records from the Ottoman Empire onwards of Palestinian families that were subject to population transfer and ethnic cleansing from the beginning of Israel until now, they're being held under lock and key under the auspices of the United Nations until such a time that there's actually a restitution program put into place that will allow them to legitimately reacquire and repossess the properties that were so heinously stolen from them since 1947 onwards. Now, having said all that, it's important to remember and to point out that every single Jewish person in the world, including all of my Jewish friends, have a legal right to return to Israel and live there in perpetuity if they wish to do so, even if they've never been there and have no formal links to the place whatsoever, purely based on the fact that they are Jewish. There is absolutely... No such right accorded to any Palestinian who may have lived for hundreds and hundreds of years, their families, on the very same uh, pieces of land. Um, there is no right, right to return under Israeli law, but there is certainly under international law and countless United Nations resolutions and other statements have been made in support of the right of return and right of restitution for the uh, the current uh caseload of palestinian refugees which now numbers 678 million maybe even more uh, when you add it all up so that's kind of a modern day yep. manifestation um of what a 100 or 200 years of policy can have in terms of impact upon people that are alive today so i think um maybe we'll just wrap up this first um um uh, first part of our discussion with um Maybe we should just go up until um, 1948, maybe 1967, Joe. And then next time we okay. speak, um, we can go from 1967 till the current day, because there's just so much. I mean, literally, I could easily go for 10 more hours nonstop. There's just so yeah, much information. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I'm not referring to any books or papers or anything, and neither are you. This is all just from, you know, personal experience. And so, you know... Aside from, so let's let's just do that real quickly, up from like 48 till 67. And before we end, just make a plea to every single Israeli and every single Jewish person in the world to please vi- try to visit Palestinian areas and try to meet the people there and try to talk to them and try to engage with them and see, as I have with my own eyes many times and as Joe has far more times, um, the immense, immense human suffering that Palestinian families across that area are forced to endure every single day. I mean, the, the brutality, the carnage, the lack of hope um, that they are subjected to is so severe and so never-ending and so ruthless and so cruel that you would have to have a heart of steel and not to feel something. Uh, and feel a degree of responsibility for trying to reverse the situation and really try to come up with a workable uh, way of resolving this conflict in the future, where, whereby all peoples in the area can can flourish in, and be prosperous. So, yes. Uh, how about it? Uh, up, up to sixty-seven. Yeah,
1: uh, just, to, just to wrap up. Uh, yes, and to do that, one has to understand the root causes. Uh, and interrogate those, and we need to have lots of discussion about that in the Jewish community, which of course is happening uh, happily uh, much more now. Uh, and yes, the Palestinians are the Palestinian refugees are seven million uh, and counting. Uh, and the, I, I have great faith in the new uh, generation for actually, you know, keeping that that. Uh, history alive by the way and you know we sh- we have to check our references but by the way you know what you referred to as ethnic cleansing that, and the and the documentation of that the village committees that were set out to uh, infiltrate and then of course make sure that the populations of the villages left under uh, actual threat but uh, uh, there were also a series of 33 massacres that were strategically uh, carried out uh, by the, the Zionist uh, Zionist forces across Palestine to make sure that the, the populations were sufficiently terrorized uh, mm-hmm. in 1947. Uh, this is in a book uh, by Ilan Pappe, uh, the Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, and the documents we, you referred to are uh, analyzed and, and 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 fully presented in the book by uh, Michael Fischbach, uh the Records of Dispossession. Uh, we can go into that. But those institutions that I'm talking about are precisely those institutions that that impose, uh, I would say, this Jewish nationality, uh, as you said, upon uh, people of Jewish faith, if their mother is Jewish, uh, with specific rights uh, in, superior to indigenous Palestinians. Uh, and by the way, they operate as Registered tax-exempt registered charities in over 50 countries in the world, and that's how nice. it affects everyone, uh, at least in those 50 countries, that they're carrying out as raison d'etre, population transfer as a serious crime, uh, as their their main program, uh, as tax-exempt charities. Uh, it really affects everyone. If we were to then take 1967 as a cutoff point, which makes some historical graphical sense, it's also at that point with this uh, tremendous victory of Israel over the neighboring states, thanks to United States uh, listening posts uh, and other aid at the time. It wasn't a, you know, a divine miracle, by the way. It was with the United States support. Uh, that was the kind of uh, cutting-off point for many people in the Jewish community. I'll, give, I'll end with a, just an anecdote, and that is with the American Council for Judaism set up uh, actually in the 40s uh, by a, a bunch of North American uh, anti-Zionist uh, rabbis uh, to insist that we are Jews of faith. We are not, you know, uh, a, a nationality, and we, uh, and this is where we live is our promised land. We're not, you know, seeking to colonize anyone else. Uh, but that, uh, in 1967, that institution collapsed because mm-hmm. that war, talk about 1948 and the, and the Holocaust as being a watershed all, another historic watershed is 1967, right. where the, the, the kind of the bottom fell out from under the anti-Zionist Jews uh, in Western countries. And after that, a whole generation uh, of, of people of Jewish faith were denied that, uh, that emancipationist tradition it's that, as if it disappeared. It didn't exist. One of the people who kept it alive until his, his death in 1996 was Rabbi Elmer Berger. And if you want to go back and read his Jewish dilemma, uh, Judaism or Jewish nationalism, you know, a, a series of books, he was very prolific um, and actually one of my mentors for for many years. Uh, I had the privilege to know him for eight years before he died. When When he left. Uh, the Council for Judaism, the American Council for Judaism, that whole generation was deprived of the emancipationist tradition and, and the, the anti-Zionist understanding of uh, the distinction between what is it to be a Jew, uh, a person of Jewish faith, or to be an Israeli uh, colonizer uh, and part, uh, as a cog in an in apartheid in a system. Um, so from 1967, we can actually, you know, create a, okay, it's a little bit arbitrary, but in ideological terms, it really was a watershed, uh, especially for people of Jewish faith, for people in the United States, for people in the West who had been spoon-fed this, uh, this ideology of race, racial distinction, and uh, justifying apartheid, even on biblical, uh, you know, foundations, uh, and then the rest, of course, is history.
0: Well, sixty-seven, of course, is the year that's used to define uh, what is now referred to as the occupation, right? Even though. One could argue that the occupation began 19 years before that, um, with the uh, with the Israeli victory um, in that short war um, in 1967, where by the West Bank and well what, Gaza already, but the West Bank was fully and completely occupied, and that of course changed the whole dynamic in terms of eventually trying to find a peaceful way. Yes, forward, and, uh,
1: and we can we can explore that dynamic. Uh, subsequently, but this is this is precisely the point uh, that we're making here. That yes, that cut off, that arbitrary cutoff of 1967 began what is known as the occupation. But it's not the occupation that created apartheid. It's not the annexation that creates that equals apartheid. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> it's not even the annexation of. Jerusalem, uh, illegally, and in defiance of uh, Security Council resolutions, and all and void, and all this other, uh, you know, legal uh, distinction, it's not that that constitutes apartheid. It was set up, it's a setup, uh, to serve a particular group of people identified as a distinct race at the expense of another, institutionalized in these parastatal Organizations that have their roots in the most despicable uh, period of European uh, history—I wouldn't say civilization—but uh, you know, th- this is something that is shared by people in Europe, by people in, in North America, uh, for all the reasons that I. I gave, you know, kind of sweeping the, the planet and, and, and history at the same time. Um, it's really important to keep all these aspects in mind in order to understand what are the root causes and what is needed uh, to resolve an obvious, uh, intractable problem.
0: Are you optimistic at all about the prospects for a, a more peaceful coexistence down the road given the current state of affairs or have you lost all hope
1: uh, given the current state of affairs um, there's, there's look it's dynamic um, and if I were to be selfish and to see things in the frame of my own lifetime I would have to be really 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 pessimistic nothing is going to change within my lifetime. Uh, for the better, but like I said, there are questioning new generations that are inquiring and interrogating uh, these ideological assumptions. Um, Besides the the sort of human dimension of solidarity with Black Lives Matter and uh, and Indigenous Lives Matter, uh, these unfortunate, you know, meals that we've been served up, uh, historically, uh, have to be properly digested and, uh, and, and rethought. Uh, and I think that process, that dynamic is, is a long one. It's going to take much more time than I have to witness it, unless I can become a, an actual vampire. Uh, but <laughs> even then, you know, climate change is not very, going to be very kind on vampires either. So, uh, sure. yes, I, I'm optimistic that after we check out, uh, there will be, there will be some kind of a, a normalcy, but all of these institutional uh, forms of racial discrimination, uh, the apartheid system that exists, have to give way to something better. And that gives me optimism as long as critical thinking remains alive.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I think there's got to be at least, I don't know, who knows what the percentage is, but at least 5, 10, 15, maybe even 20% of Israeli society would like to see things resolved in a really nice, gentle, loving, kind way. Um, but those people tend never to get positions of political power, and... Um, and are really marginalized in terms of, you know, developing yeah, but, Israeli yeah, law and policy, but they're there. There's, there's, I mean, they're, they're there. That's the important thing to point out. They are there. You know, there's a lot of Israelis are, that would love to have a one state solution, you know?
1: The, the problem with Israelis is that they're just like people and you know how people are in Australia, you know, how people are in the United States, you know, how, how, uncomfortable they get when they are confronted with their own history um Mm. it it really takes a lot of soul searching uh to realize that it's not just the occupation stupid it's the whole setup and 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 we're part of it you know i was raised in that i was raised in this this uh idea that israel was uh was a sacrament Right, uh, right, and that doesn't—that's quite apart from any Jewish uh, affiliation. Uh, It's—it's just pure colonialism and and pure racism, institutionalized in all of its forms. The repetition of of horrible crimes that were prosecuted at Nuremberg and took place again in Palestine the next year, in India and Pakistan the next year, uh, mm-hmm. in. Europe, Central Europe, with the the of the the expulsion of the of the of the, folks Deutsche after the Second World War. Sure. These are Nemesis <laughs> <provocative laughs> at Potsdam. <Pottstown. crime.
0: laughs> right, right, right.
1: And they took place right, you know, on the you know in the in the, te- on the at the tail end of the Nuremberg and the Tokyo tribunals, and that history passes without a whisper of contradiction
0: right well i think we'll end it there so joe shekla from speaking to us tonight from cairo i can hear the the call to prayer in the background i think um that's that's for real that's not just piped in (laughs) and just to prove that you are actually in cairo (laughs) And uh, well, thank you very yeah. much for, a, a, you know, hopefully an eye opening um, our discussion about, hour long discussion about the origins of, uh, you know, what is still the unresolved Israeli Palestinian conflict. Um, you know, and I should add, of course, that neither myself nor Joe are either Palestinian, nor Israeli, nor Jewish, nor Muslim. And we just. Nor nor Christian uh, we just approached this issue exclusively from uh, humanitarian human rights perspective and um, you know feel that it's it's really one of the most important international issues uh, in the world it's been ongoing for decades and decades and we really need to find a critical mass of people that will help find a just and equitable way forward on this and um, and let's keep hope alive and, and see that change does often come. Um, it just takes a long time, and, and sometimes patience is the best um, approach, but justice very often does come about yeah. in even the worst yeah. circumstances in the world, and there's a lot of struggles that both Joe and myself have had uh, You know, the privilege to be very, very, very close to um, who did ultimately prevail um, and who did in the against all odds eventually overthrow the whether it was the you know indonesia occupying east timor or the white regime dominating the apartheid regime in in south africa or and a whole range of others where you know a net victory never looked very close um but sometimes it does come about doesn't always come about but sometimes it does so with that, I will yeah. thank you again, Joe, and um, we'll be back with part two of this discussion, well. 1967 onwards to today. And during that time, we're going to explore not only uh, the questions of you know occupation and war and the current uh, right-wing government in in Israel, which is planning to annex one third of uh, the West Bank, but what you know what whatever happened to the Oslo. Peace accords and the Oslo peace process when things looked so favorable in the early mid 90s, you know, whatever happened to um, even Gandhian movements that were sort of fledgling, but nonetheless sort of taking root in certain parts of of Palestine and a whole range of other questions and what is a possible way forward? What are they, you know, what will it, what would it look like um, in a region like that, in a country like that, um, which has, you know, a a very large uh, um, economy for its size. Um, So there is certainly an economic potential for finding a way um, forward, but before that has to come a psychological shift in the minds of everyone in the region towards, you know, a spirit of, of oneness and a spirit of brotherhood and a spirit of equality. And once people reach that stage of understanding, yeah. well, anything's possible.
1: It's not to be overly Hegelian, but yeah, it, uh, that change starts in the mind and definitely it, it's up to all of us.
0: Absolutely. Um, okay, Joe. Well, thank you very much. Um, that was the first part of episode 28, and we will be back soon with part two of jointly venturing Let's Talk World Citizenship with Joe Shekla, again speaking to us probably from Cairo, given the fact that COVID 19 means people can't hit the road like they normally do, including myself, who is enduring the longest time not sitting on an airplane since 1965. Right. <laughs> so, with That's that, right. fairly well. But
1: I wish. Egypt. It would be nice to visit Egypt and kind of stuck here. But, yeah.
0: Your day happily, will come.
1: Happily uh, here and ready to talk at any time.
0: Your day will come. Okay, okay, so join us next week for episode 29 when we will be speaking about the melting Arctic with climate change campaigner Robin Bronnen. So until then, Take it easy, everybody. Bye.